Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. And my name may or may not be Todd Ixenball, a.k.a. the Todd Father. And you may be wondering, today is Thursday. Why is there a podcast today? Why am I working today? Well, we are doing two episodes a week all throughout the entire month of June. We are going to be releasing them on Tuesdays and on Thursdays. And so, ta-da! Surprise! We're here! Goody, goody for us and you. Now, not only do you get two episodes a week, we have a phenomenal conversation today. Today, we're talking with Shane Snow. So, Shane is an author, a guy, he's started a company, he does all sorts of stuff, but dude, this book was so good. Dream Teams is the book's name. This book was phenomenal. Uh, the interview was phenomenal. Caleb freaked out because he was fangirling. Yep. It was great. Oh, yeah. Yep. He's an award-winning journalist. He's also written a book called Smart Cuts. You may be familiar with that. He found he is the co-founder of the content technology company, Contently. He's written for Fast Company, Wired, and The New Yorker. He's... Successful dude. Very successful. Successful dude. And humble. I love that conversation with him because... He wasn't trying to be the expert. He's just saying, this is the stuff that I found. Yep, exactly. But Caleb, before... You got something you want to share? We get going. We have our resources of the week. Our resources of the week. Are you ready? Okay. What? That was very unenthusiastic. (laughs) That was very unenthusiastic. I feel like you need to redo that and be like, tell me, Todd, please. Tell me, Todd, please. Thank you. Gosh. Well, obviously, the first one is Shane's book, Dream Teams. Y'all can pick that up. It released this week. It released on Tuesday. Pick that up. You can get that at Amazon, wherever books are sold. The second one is on Tuesday, we aired an episode with Sam Collier, and I wrote an article a couple weeks ago, um, and I talk about Sam's book, and I kind of uh, give some tidbits about that, just a little teaser. But I all there's also in that some leadership principles that I kind of took out of that book and and kind of applied in my life and what I've learned in my life, um, and how finding finding my voice is something that really resonated with me as I was reading that book. So go ahead and, and grab that. It's on Medium. Um, we'll have that in the show notes. You guys can just click on that. You guys can find that. But you're going to be seeing us doing a lot of stuff on Medium. So be watching. Exactly. That now, was your resource you, of the week. You may be wondering, Sam Collier, I haven't listened to that episode. You need to go back. Go back to last week. Listen to this Not episode. last week, on Tuesday. Ooh, I got to change up my stuff. Yep. Go back, listen to that episode. Now, because that was a great episode. It was phenomenal. But we also have a great episode today. And so, without further ado, Let's do it. here is our conversation with Shane Snow. Well, Shane, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today to talk about your brand new book, Dream Teams. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, just as we get started, I'm curious, was there something in particular that made you want to write this book? It, so a lot of projects like this that I do, big projects that are you know, sort of these adventures through science and history, I guess, you know, all three of my books have been... A combination of a lot of things that have sort of tickled my brain for long enough that uh, that I've you know ended up putting dots together. But if I could bring it back to one main sort of time or thing event that uh, that made me want to write this, 
it, uh, it basically was the realization that my job at my startup company that I started eight years ago now, my job went from being the person who does things to the person who helps other people do things. And, uh, you know, and I, I'm pretty good at what I do and I'm getting better at it. And, uh, and so it was, uh, it was a, a new skill that I was trying to learn to, you know, to put the right people together, to identify the right people, put them together and then help them succeed and let go of making the decisions, let go of doing the fun stuff sometimes. And, uh, and, you know, I kind of had that realization. And as I was studying all of the things that kind of came together um, in, in the book Dream Teams, I realized that, uh, that really a lot of what I was trying to learn was for my own sake in my journey as a team leader. But there's also this element that was really important to me that, that is probably the thing that kicked it off the most is just looking at the world around us and seeing the same story at kind of every scale, whether it's at a societal level or, or international relations level or, you know, in uh, couples that I knew that were having problems or that were really successful. And the, basically the pattern is that when different human beings with different ideas and opinions and desires and ways of seeing the world, when they come together, they either do really cool things, they become more incredible together, or they fall apart and, you know, kind of have standoffs and want to destroy each other. And the same thing that you see in relationships between two people that fall apart is kind of paralleled in a lot of ways to what you see between countries like the U.S. and Russia now, or especially, you know, 50 years ago. And so there was that thing going on, too. And I, I don't know if you've noticed, but Facebook is a lot more testy these days. People are, are getting a lot more... <laughs> Uh, upset at each other, and uh, and yet we have all this technology that gives us the opportunity to have really interesting conversations with people who are not like us in ways that we didn't have before. So all that kind of rolled together, um, and you know the same things apply in a company. You put people together, and they're different, which makes them have potential, but it also makes it tough. You know, one of, and you even mentioned it in here, one of the things that you talk a lot about in your book is diversity, and not just, you know, uh, cultural diversity or ethnic diversity or gender diversity, you know, socioeconomic diversity, all, like, all of that stuff in there. Why do you think it is that we tend to, you know, we try to not be diverse, though. I mean, we try to gravitate towards the people who are like us. Why do we tend to, you know, not go after diversity? So it's not anyone's fault. It's the way that our brains are built. You know, when we were surviving together in a much more primitive society, it was advantageous to, for our brains to decide that, uh, that we needed to work together with people who looked like us, talked like us, acted like us, because they were safe. And, and, and you know, our brain said, it's okay for me to turn my back on you because you're part of my tribe. Uh, but it was not safe to turn your back on someone who didn't look or act or talk like you because that was the threat. And so our brains developed this, you know, this ability to categorize people in, you know, safe group and question mark group. And so when we, when it comes to building teams, you know, we talk about creating diversity, putting together people from all different backgrounds, experiences, all the wonderful things that make, you know, the the mosaic of humanity so interesting and have so much potential we're fighting against this natural fear that we have of things that are different or ideas that are different or that are new. And so the way that we, we resist creating diversity in ways that are often subtle and subconscious, we might say, hey, it's good that people are, are different and we should respect that and, and tolerate it and celebrate it. But then 
we we bring people who are different together and we say what well, we have to be unified because if we're not unified then maybe we'll have conflict and fight and that will be uncomfortable maybe we'll have to talk about things that you know they're outside of of uh you know what feels safe and so everyone get with the program and fit our way of doing and thinking things or we say hey you know, there's research dating back to the 1970s that says that we're the happiest when we work together with people who are very similar to us in personality. We say, hey, if we're happier, we'll probably get better work done. But it turns out that's not true. <laughs> you get better work done if you can push each other to do better work. And that isn't always correlated with being happy. And in fact, uh, you know, it, you can have people who are nice together and happy together who are very different. But our, our instinct is to say, well, what's going to make people the most comfortable is uh, is people like us, people who remind us of our younger selves. You know, we want to work with those people. There's a little bit of ego attached to that too. Uh, so for all of these reasons, it it makes creating a, a diverse team hard, either subconsciously or consciously, because we're afraid of you know of things getting too out of hand. And uh, and and that's been a problem for a long time. The good news is, if I can just ramble a little more. There's a lot of great new psychology research and neuroscience that actually helps us to understand how we can get past that and why there's not just a moral reason to work with people who are different than us, but a very pragmatic reason to do it, too. What are, what are some of those reasons? So one that I feel like will appeal to you guys is, uh, is learning. You learn more from people who are very different from you, and, uh, and, that's, and that's sort of obvious, but... You know, there's sort of meta learning that's going on at all the time whenever we're working on a project, whenever we're just at work doing our job. And if you work with people who are very similar to you, then you're not going to learn as much just naturally. The other thing is that, you know, two heads are not really better than one unless they think differently. You know, if you have a group <laughs> of people that all think the same, yeah. you may as well have one person. So you actually solve problems better. If you have different uh, different ways of thinking, attacking you know whatever problem you're attacking, and of course that leads to all sorts of questions of how do you make sure that that relationship doesn't fall apart. But that's where the potential to be smarter than ourselves comes from. You can see further. You can see more. Do you know those glasses, the the red and blue 3D glasses that you know mm -hmm. that you put on to to see holograms or whatever, and, and I assume cheesy movies in like the <laughs> 70s. Uh, so those 3D glasses, the way that they work is you're seeing different lenses on the world out of different eyes, and you put those together, and you can see something you couldn't see before. And that's the way it is with people as well. Um, and, and there's all sorts of things that, that happen because we don't do that. We get best practices in industries, which are, end up being kind of average practices, and, and we don't know how to, do, how to get better than what's out there until someone comes along who looks at things differently, and they kind of disrupt everyone. And this is what disruption is about, is someone who attacks a problem differently. Um, and, uh, and so we fall into this pit of doing what we think is the best way to do something, but actually it ends up being a whole bunch of people doing it one way, even if that way is really good or has been really good. Uh, so there's all sorts of, uh, of things that, that kind of come into play here in terms of the, the psychology and the neuroscience, basically neuroscience says that there are ways that we can train our brains to form neural pathways to be less afraid of people who are different than us. And, uh, and there's all sorts of really cool stuff there. And psychology says that uh, there are little tricks that we can do to, you know, in the interim between now and when our brains sort of form these habits, um, in the interim there are tricks that we can do to help us 
engage with people in ways that can be more productive, can lead us to see further without freaking out. And, uh, and, and that stuff is really cool. And, and it's really only recent years. So I don't fault any of us for having worked suboptimally all these years, but I'm really excited about what we can do together now. Shane, I had a couple questions about um, the leader, being the leader of, of a team and, and what that looks like. In your book, you talk about postures and things that, that leaders and teams should take. What, what's the most important posture, do you think, that a leader of a team can take to inspire and move a team forward? So this question is especially important if you're leading a team of different people, right? If you have that high potential team, the question becomes, well, how are you going to be unified? How is this not going to be chaos? Mm. And so I think the leader, the most important posture a leader can take is, uh, is basically leading with the power of personal and vulnerable story about a higher purpose. So if the leader can convince people and express the story of why they're there, why they're trying to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish, and how that connects to them personally, and to identify the emotions that are behind that, that they feel and, and that, they, you know, that they will feel as you get to that purpose and that, uh, that mission. That's the sort of thing that no matter who you are and how different you are from each other, you can, one, you'll be inspired by. And you know, there's all sorts of brain science around stories that I get into into the book about how stories make us care. Um, but also, it, it's sort of the highest order thing that you can rally around that doesn't squash your potential different ways of looking at things. And you can be really different. The analogy that I use that's sort of the cheesy one is uh, when the aliens come to destroy the earth, we forget about the borders between our countries. We forget about you know, our beef with people of different religions. And, uh, and in fact, we start thinking harder about, well, hey, you're good at this, we could use you for that. If you think of this this way, we could use you for that. Uh, because the most important thing is the survival against the aliens. We, we realize we're all humans. And so you have a diverse group of people. If, if you can get people to care about a higher order purpose, then that's the most important. If they don't care about that, then, then maybe they ought not to be on the team. Um, but uh, the leader can, you know, the best leaders in the world are masters of storytelling, of telling that story of what they're trying to do. In my first book years ago, I wrote about how Elon Musk, who's now maybe one of the most famous business people inventors uh, and inventors currently. News, and in the news all the time. All the time. He's a master storyteller. And the story that he tells about uh, SpaceX is my favorite. He says, we're trying to make human life multiplanetary. So if there's some horrible plague on Earth, human beings don't get wiped off the universe. I mean, that is an incredible story and an incredible purpose. Not everyone believes that that is important, but a lot of really smart scientists do. And that's, you know, that's how he leads that team. And he gets them to do incredible things. He's able to push them further than they think they can go because that purpose and that story is so strong. I think that's a really good example to follow. So I have a question that I want to ask about. And you've talked about story, and you write, there's a ton of just fascinating stories all throughout your book. Thank you. I'm just curious, um, because this is just one thing that I, I just love talking about. What does your process look like for finding, you know, fascinating stories that um, are almost like the behind the scenes stories of like major things that might not people might not realize about what does your process look like for finding those stories and stuff i uh yeah i, I love this question i could probably talk about this for a long time <laughs> so stories how do i find stories i think 
first of all, I just love to read and I love to dig down to original sources. So a lot of the stories that we read in, you know, in our textbooks in school or stuff that we read on the internet is sort of layers away from the original material. So I like to get back to the original source material. I, you know, one of the stories in, uh, in Dream Teams is about old school detectives in the 1800s. I went and I found the journals of these guys and read them, you know, and you pick out little things. And the, the analogy that I've used a, a little bit lately uh, around this, not this, but, but just in general, one of my favorite analogies is when I was a kid, when I started learning to skateboard, suddenly every piece of concrete looked like a skate park. And I thought about the world differently. You see in the world what you want to see. And so when I started you know, studying the science of human collaboration, I would read these old stories or these old documents, and I would see things that I hadn't seen before that I might not have seen before. And, and so that's part of my process for finding stories is connecting the dots. Some of these stories are not that interesting without the hook of what we're talking about with the science of collaboration. The other thing that I like to do just in general, is I read everything I can um, and, and down to the technical stuff, and then I go interview experts. So often the stories that I find, the nuggets that are the things that are sort of less known, uh, these stories of people who you know of or stories of people you've never heard of, are because I go and I track down professors who've made their life's work studying these people. Um, and so, you know, one of the, like, one of, a big shame, actually, in the book, I have a chapter where I, in part of the chapter, I talk about Malcolm X, and I dig into kind of lesser-known parts of his story, which is an incredible story, an tra incredible transformational journey of what it takes to change your mind, which is crucial to being a good teammate. And, uh, and this uh, Pulitzer-winning biographer named Manny Marable wrote this incredible uh, long book about Malcolm X with just amazing research, and he tragically passed away like a year before I got to his book. So I couldn't interview him, but I could dig into his footnotes and his citations and interview the people that he interviewed. And, uh, and, and I went and I reached out to other scholars of Malcolm X and, and people who were colleagues of Manning Marable. And those conversations and those interviews, you unearth more of those things that you can then use to pick out the patterns and the stories that we've kind of all heard. So that's kind of my process. It's, it's sort of this obsessive, I want to know everything about this I want to be the biggest know-it-all, and I think more out of more than anything because I'm a curious person, um, and it's fun to find what other people haven't seen. But I especially love that kind of story—the story that we all think we know, but underneath, there's an even more interesting story. I love that sort of stuff. Sure, mm -hmm. Shane. One of the things with with teams that we all know is the more different opinions and different minds and different personalities you get around a table, the more potential there is for conflict. Um, how do good teams manage conflict, particularly conflict that comes about as a result of, of those things, diversity on a team? How, do, how does a good team manage those? This is one of the biggest problems that corporate America faces right now. A lot of corporate America is caught on to the idea either for PR purposes or for moral purposes or for pragmatic purposes, whatever it is. Most of the Fortune 500 has a diversity officer of some sort at this point, and most companies have some sort of diversity and inclusion goal stated or actually being practiced. Um, you can be kind of cynical about a lot of it, but, uh, but most companies have caught on to this idea that it's important for some reason or another. But then what happens next is the problem that most of these companies are facing, which is people who are different, if you let them speak up, which a lot of organizations don't, if you let them speak up, they're going to have conflict. 
their different ways of thinking are going to collide. And so this is where a lot of companies make this mistake of saying, all right, now fit the culture, get with the program. This is the way things are done here. This is the way we talk here. And you just sort of squash that out of people. And all you're left with is sort of the nervousness and fear and, uh, and none of the kind of benefits, you know, that we've been talking about. So, uh, you know, how a team can handle this kind of conflict well, there's things that you can do, kind of psychological tricks that can help depressurize conflict. In one chapter, I talk about the power of play, which, uh, you know, as much as we make fun of corporate offsites going to the jungle gym or whatever and running through the forest and doing trust falls, it turns out that if you actually have fun doing something together, even if you're very different and afraid of each other or nervous or you have a lot of, of intellectual conflict, mm-hmm. if you have fun together, your brain basically starts to categorize that person in, in the safe zone, in the safe category, which means you can push that conflict further without it getting personal. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the goal really with conflict is to make it about ideas, not about, you know, being personal and to keep it focused on the right things, which is another thing that, you know, the leader's job these days with diverse teams is to identify when that's not happening and to help sort of course correct. So how do you, you get the conflict to not get personal? Getting people to laugh together, getting people to play together, to have fun together is a good way to, to just generally ease the tension. Um, you know, another thing that's powerful about storytelling is not just painting the purpose and, uh, and your personal connection as a leader, but getting people to open up to each other about their stories, about what they care about, getting them to vocalize their emotions about how they felt when things happened to them in their lives. Um, this is especially good when you're having conversations about diversity and inclusion. Everyone has felt excluded at some point in their life, and some people much worse than other people. You know, I've been included a lot more in my life than a lot of people I know. But there's been times when I've felt excluded, and our stories may not be the same, but if I say, and then I felt like a bad person, and I felt anxious, and I felt sad, people can relate to that emotion, and suddenly you're human beings with each other. And it becomes much easier to uh, to deal with the conflict or to have the conflict be productive. So there's things like that that you can do. I think more than anything, all of us, the more that we can identify when conflict is about, has turned into something that's about kind of destroying the other party or circumventing the other party or foiling them or about our goals rather than the team's goals. The conflict is about you know how the team is gonna push forward, that's great. But if the conflict is about how I'm going to get the promotion over you, that is not great. And so identifying when that's happening so that we can all move forward together, and this is where leaders are especially important, but anyone can do this. So that's, that's the, the underlying, uh, I guess, goal. And then you know, doing it in practice is going to be situational, and, and it's going to be practice. I was just at um, BlackRock, the, the big yeah. uh, asset manager investment fund. I think they, they manage more money than any other corporation. Yep. So I was just there, and, uh, and I was hanging out with their head of diversity and inclusion, and we we're doing a fireside chat. And a couple of times during our conversation, he said something, and then he noticed my reaction, like a really subtle reaction, and he called it out. He said, hey, I noticed you stiffened up when I said that. Uh, tell me how you're feeling. Tell me, tell me about that. Um, what's, what's going on? And, uh, you know, and he did that a couple of times, and I realized that this guy is really good, really well-practiced at noticing little things in other people 
so we can see when they're reacting in a way that is going to be kind of detrimental, where they'll hold back now or be scared or maybe get mad, and helping them to label their emotions so that you can get back to the, the, the debate about ideas and not get stuck in what happens to us as humans, which is uh, you know being mired in our emotions and and then things can can get off the rails, especially in a working situation. I thought that was really cool. I I had the thought afterwards. I wonder how he learned to do that so well. Is it just that he's been around the block a few times, or what does he do? And is it just noticing, um, just paying attention, being deliberate, or is there something else? Anyway, so I'm going to find out. Uh, I'll shoot you guys an email if uh, yeah, I want to find blowing. Is there is there something yeah. that as the leader, when you're going, maybe maybe you've assembled a team and you've really worked hard to create this diversity. What are some things that you need to do as the leader to prepare yourself to begin to walk through conversations like that? If there if there is anything, I'm just thinking of like a you're a new leader at a new job and you walk onto a team with with diverse opinions and things like that. What type of mental preparation or what type of preparation in general do you need to do to be able to navigate that as the leader? It's a really good question. This is an area where I think I need work. What comes to mind is uh, there's been a lot of great research lately, the last few years, about the benefits of mindfulness meditation. So, you know, it used to be this thing that, you know, it's a sort of Eastern wellness practice that people did and, and they said it felt good. Now we have scientific research that says it actually helps change our brains. Mm. And, um, you know, the thing about mindfulness meditation is it's about observing essentially you know taking in with your senses what's happening and not reacting immediately not judging it yet like letting it sit there with you mm. and and just kind of paying attention and i would expect that the more you do that the better you'll be able to as a leader walk into a room where there is conflict where someone does say something and not react immediately uh, i think often our knee jerk reactions i mean often they're the you know the right kind of response, but the way that we do it as a leader then reinforces you know, the wrong kind of uh, conflict. I think as a leader, what I would like to do is to be able to have any kind of conversation and process in between what I hear and observe and what I say, have my brain process it in a way that what I output is always empathetic, mm. that is taking into account what the, the people's needs are from kind of a support level. Um, and that can steer conversations back to being about ideas and about the team um, and, and being able to identify those things. And I think that's hard to do without pausing, taking a breath. So if you want to walk into a room prepared to do that, probably mindfulness meditation is a good habit um, or, you know, psyching yourself up before you go into the room and saying, listen before you react and, uh, you know, and do that. I, I expect if every leader did that. Holy crap! What a different world would we have, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. So another concept that you talk about a lot in the book, and this is one of the things that really stood out to me, was the importance of humility whenever it comes to teams, especially whenever it comes to diverse teams, and you know, being willing, like you were saying, being willing to listen to each other, show empathy towards one another. Um, what I want to know is what can someone do, whether it be um, the leader or someone on the team, what can they do to actively increase their humility or their openness to being humble? Yeah. So the thing that I studied in particular in the course of this book is something called intellectual humility. 
which it's, it's pretty close to what we generally call humility. Mm-hmm. Um, humility is, it's about recognizing your own fallibility. It's not about rolling over, you know, when anyone is, has a, you know, a louder voice than you or whatever, but it's about recognizing that, uh, that you're not perfect. And intellectual humility is that, but in intellectual ways. So recognizing that you're not always right. And there's actually four factors of when psychologists define intellectual humility. The four factors are respecting other people's viewpoints, no matter what they are. Hmm. Actually, harder than we think. Some viewpoints are really hard to respect. Um, yeah, that sounds, like such a, some... that sounds like such a simple concept. And literally, our society right now cannot do that. It's yeah, crazy. It's, it's hard. Well, and even if you think, so I did this study where basically determined that 95% of people think that they are more open-minded than the average person. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So all of us think we're good at this stuff, um, oh. but you know, but not as good. It's, you can think that you respect other people's opinions and points of view, and, but you'll be surprised when something comes along where you're like, no, and you just can't handle it. And, and that happens to me all the time. So that's one dimension of it. Another is not being intellectually overconfident. So not basically not believing that you're the greatest at everything um, and uh, you know, having a realistic picture of your, of your intellectual you know, abilities. The, the next is separating your ego from your intellect, Ooh. which is, uh, is the one that I have the hardest time with. Um, and so basically, I can respect someone else's opinion. But if they convince me I'm wrong, it really hurts. It hurts my ego a lot. And then the fourth thing is being able to revise your viewpoint. Um, when necessary. And it's not just always being gullible, right? It's not sort of blowing around with the wind. It's, uh, it's being able to, being smart enough and humble enough to recognize when you should change your mind. And so, you know, if the question is, how do we develop that? There's, there's a few things that we can generally, this is, is basically like three quarters of open-mindedness. The other part of open-mindedness is being willing to try new things, mm. right? So you could change your mind about ice cream, but if you never try a new flavor of ice cream, <laughs> and you're not really open-minded. Um, and you could respect all the ice creams, but if you never would taste it, then, you know, what's the point? Anyway, so that's what open-mindedness is. How do you get that? There's some things that generally help our brains to sort of train the neural pathways, um, you know, the neuroplasticity of our brains that can allow us to, to change. There are things that we can do to get better at that. And, uh, you know, the sort of most surefire ways to do that are uh, things like moving to a new country and living in another culture your brain starts to learn, if you're not really stubborn, your brain will start to kind of implicitly understand that there's more than one right way to do something and that there are valid ways of living that are not yours. Even if you get that at sort of a logical level, actually living it helps your brain to get better at, uh, at applying that lesson in other situations. Same thing with learning more languages, same thing with reading fiction and watching television shows, not news, but you know, news is important, but news doesn't make you more humble, intellectually humble. But watching uh, fictional shows about people who are not like you actually trains your brain to have empathy for people, to care about them, and to think, hey, maybe it's okay for them to be different than me. And all of this can lead to a little more respect for different viewpoints, uh, a little more ability to change our minds. The, the one that's really hard that I'm working on now, doing follow-up research on, is, is separating your ego from your intellect. So often, ego gets in the way, right, of, of us as leaders or as team members. Um, you know, we know we're wrong, but we're going to hold our ground and make things hard, right? Or we know we're yeah. wrong, and then we're going to feel terrible and not participate anymore. Um, or, you know, we are afraid of being wrong, so we'll fight dirty. 
And, and this is a natural thing, and I have a problem with this. So what I've been lately starting to do research on is what is ego exactly? What is egotism? Um, and, uh, and how do we combat that? How do we get a little bit better? There's a couple of tricks that I've, I've kind of found in, yeah. in this journey. There's a lot of research to be done. But Ben Franklin had this trick. He's a very opinionated guy. He's smarter than most of the people that he talked to. Um, He's smarter than most and, of the people uh, today. Yeah, agreed. So when you're that guy, it's easy to get caught into the trap of I'm always right, and uh, and I'm always going to be smarter. And he recognized that that was uh, a pitfall that he was very liable to fall in. So what he would do when he would express a really strong opinion um, or make an argument that he thought was right, he would always, this is what he said at least, he'd always preface it with, I could be wrong, but, and then here's the case that he makes. And what that did is it made it for him, if someone proved him wrong, then he was actually still right, because uh, at the beginning I said I could be wrong. And that was his trick of basically using his ego, leveraging his ego's need to be right, um, but allowing sort of this loophole for him to change his mind or him to not feel humiliated. And also the nice thing about that kind of trick, that sort of rhetorical trick, is it puts people less on their heels when you mm. express a strong opinion. So we're arguing about something, we're trying to build something, we're arguing about, you know, how, what, you know, whatever, some feature of it, and we have very different opinions and all this potential to find a greater third option between us. If, uh, if I say, no, it's this way, then you might get defensive. And if I say, no, it's this way, and you're like, oh, you missed this thing, you're wrong, and then I'm like, oh, I, I'm mad, so I'm going to bite dirty now because of my ego. But if we just start, if I say, hey, it could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is the case, then you're going to be less defensive because you're like, oh, he said he could be wrong. Let's have a conversation about the ideas and not about who's going to win the fight. So uh, more to be done there. But those are the kinds of things, if you enter conversations and situations as a leader or as a team member, allowing people to change their minds without it being catastrophic or without fear and allowing yourself to change your mind, then uh, you know, that's, that's almost the hack for humility. Maybe it actually is humility, right? Yeah. Um, so more to be done on that front. But the nice news is as of last year, um, and I write about this in the book, and I actually helped develop a little bit of this, um, there's assessments now that you can take that are academically sound for these dimensions of intellectual humility and open-mindedness. And once you can measure that sort of thing, now we can go and do research about what can help us uh, get more of it and, and what makes us more closed-minded. And so I'm really excited about the future holds for that kind of learning. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So something that I'm curious about is what's maybe an idea that you went into this book thinking that it would be this way and it actually surprised you and it ended up being something else? Uh, this is one that I'm still wrapping my head around the nuances of, but I was really surprised as someone who's built a company and built a good culture and people who, you know, who do great work most of the time and, and you know, companies won awards for being a great place to work and a diverse place. I was surprised at the research that says that shared core values are actually not what they're cracked up to be. So every company has this list of core values on the wall, you know, and it, it kind of comes from that research in the 70s about being happy at work, kind of comes from built to last and good to great in the 90s, <clears throat> saying that great companies have cult-like cultures and where they all feel like they're part of a family and they have their own thing that's just theirs. Um, it turns out that in the middle of all of that stuff, we have decided as a business community 
that part of that working together culture thing ought to be strict core values that everyone has to adhere to. And on the face of it, it's actually pretty good, but in the long run, it actually ends up being the thing that gets companies disrupted. So the book Built to Last in the 90s was about these companies that basically were just going to endure forever. You know, these great companies that had all of these things that made them just really enduring organizations. And half of them have basically gone kaput since then. And one of the main reasons is if you are pretend that running a company or running a team is like being in a raft on a river, if there's a waterfall up ahead and someone sees it, but they can't speak up to point it out because, you know, whatever your value is, the customer is always right. So you just can't even argue with that. What if the customer is not right in a way that if you ignore it, you'll go over waterfall? Those are the kinds of things that happen when you have too strict of an emphasis on core values. So then the question becomes, well, what do you replace that with? You know, and the purpose thing, I think, is the answer to a lot of that. Um, Google Famously, you know, the only values they had for all these years was don't be evil, which is like the no duh. It's almost like a cheeky way of saying we don't yeah. like values. Is moot. The thing that everyone could recite to you is Google's mission, which is to organize the world's information. That overriding purpose was so powerful that it allowed the misfits to be who they wanted, have their different values, and that was okay, and then assess each situation with the proper care and customization that it deserved. Um, so if someone does see the waterfall, they can speak up and they can say that. If someone does want to dissent or question something that they've been doing that's been working, that's okay, because the goal is that focus on organizing the world's information. So that was really surprising to me, because having values in common is often really good. And there's the thing that's tricky about it is not all values are created equal. There are certain values that kind of the no do ones, like don't be evil, don't murder people at work, that uh, it's fine if you have all those in common. That's not going to hurt, you know, not murdering people at work is not going to hurt you. Um, I, I can't think of a, a situation when it would hurt. Um, so, but the things that are obvious that should go without saying, those are the kinds of values, like be respectful of other people's opinions. That's the sort of thing that's not going to hurt you. But uh, a lot of the core values as corporate America has them. I went and I actually had a research assistant go to every website of every Fortune 500 company and copy-paste their core values. And we made a, a big chart out of it. And 60% of them say integrity. What company doesn't want integrity, right? You only need to say that if you've like, been not integrous or you know, not honest. Yeah. Um, but uh, a lot of these values are actually just wish list behaviors. You know, they're not you know, the value of honesty, which is good. We can all agree. Um, but it's you know, our value is that we work hard, play hard. What if you don't want to play hard, right? <laughs> like, what if you have a family? What if you have three kids and you don't want to stay after work playing ping pong and drinking beer? You want to go home to your family, but you're going to show up to work with a different set of skills than everyone else has because you grew up in a different generation in a different place and you value the family in a different way. And so you see the world differently and you're not someone who just got out of college and loves drinking and playing ping pong. That should be okay. You know, and those, that isn't the work hard, play hard is not a value. That's just a, a behavior of like, this is how we do things. You don't need that. You can, you can say some of us work hard and play hard and that's cool. And some of us go to our families and, you know, and raise awesome kids and that's cool. And some of us are just hermits and loners and just want to type <laughs> code and that's cool too. Uh, but we all care about making the world better. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so um, before we get, we always have a couple of questions that we love to ask all of our guests. Before we do that, Shane, is there anything else about the book or anything that you'd want to share about our uh, with our audience? Well, I, uh, if you want to get better at the intellectual humility thing, I uh, actually posted the academic assessment on my website. So if you go to mm-hmm. shanesnow.com slash IH for intellectual humility, you can take that and it'll basically tell you how much you suck or how good you are <laughs> along these dimensions. And then, um, and then I have information on, on little things you can get better and I'm working on more. Um, that would be my number one tip. Um, you know, it's free. I, you know, it, it's just one of those things that I think the more people do that, the better. And also I get the anonymous data from everyone that's so thousands of people have taken this. So now I can draw correlations of, Hey, people who have lived in different states, you know, tend to rank higher on the respecting other viewpoints. People who have lived in a lot of states tend to rank higher, but they don't rank higher on the ego thing. So those kinds of things I think are important. So the more people that take it, the better for me and my research, but also, you know, it's anonymous and then you can see, uh, get a reality check, maybe pat yourself. Some people take this test and they're awesome. They're getting, you know, perfect scores. And I'm like, you're either lying or you're who I want working with me on my next project. Oh, wish I knew who it was. So, if, so if you sco- yeah. like how, how do you manage the tension if you do really well on that test and then you're like, dang it, I can't be proud of myself right now? <laughs> I, I think, you know, maybe you won't have a problem with that. I don't know. It's, uh, it's such a powerful skill because being able to recognize when you should pay attention to someone else and being able to recognize when you should change your mind, that's, uh, I mean, I think that just applies to so many areas. And, and it's not the same yeah. thing as saying, I'm not smart. It's recognizing that you're smart, but it's, it's just also recognizing when you can change. So, you know, Ben Franklin with his little trick, he knew he was smart, but he could also sort of hedge in a way that he could change his mind, which is cool. I, I think that both of those things are okay. Yeah, and we'll link to that in the show notes just to make it even simpler for people to get there, too. So the first question that we have is, what's one thing you've started doing recently that's helping you either prefer, or professionally or personally right now? So I started working out with a personal trainer again. I used to do it. Um, now I have someone who forces me to get up early and start my day at the gym. And two things that I really like. You know, One is you get healthy, you feel good. The other is it, if you start your day at six in the morning with a hard workout, then all the stuff that you're sort of dreading throughout the day is a little easier to do. Now, there's also this video that I, I'll send you a link. You can put it in the show notes. I forget what it is. Yeah. It's like Nike or something. It's this, one of these inspirational videos for runners where the guy is like, uh, so it's raining outside and your alarm goes off and you could just go back to sleep because it's raining. But you decide to put on your shoes and go out run. It's this like five minute into, uh, inspirational screed about how the difference between the people who change the world and the people who don't and are the people who get up and, and run in the rain. It doesn't, you know, one day of missing your running practice does not, you know, mean anything. But the fact that you do it means that you want it more. Anyway, so I listen to that once in a while. Um, same kind of thing while I'm getting ready. I'm like, ah, I got to go meet Andrew on the Upper West Side. It's going to be 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Why am I up this early? Um, anyway, so it's been helping a lot. Uh, how, how do you, how do you, I'm just laughing. <laughs> I'm supposed to be asking a question right now. How do you learn best? I think I learn best from one-on-one intense interviews. 
um, you know, I, after reading a ton, really. You know, I, I like to do research. I like to read a lot. I like to, to take notes. I use Evernote all the time. So, I'll, you know, I'll save everything that I'm reading and, and write notes when I read articles and books. Then I, I really do think I learn the best when I get one-on-one with someone who's really smart and just pummel them with hard questions. You sound like exactly like Caleb, by the way. <laughs> I just wanted oh, yeah? to throw that out there. Um, it, if you, by the way, what's, what's something that you've read, like a book that you've read recently? I'm just curious now. You said you mentioned book. What's, what's a good book yeah. you've read recently? Fiction or nonfiction? Either. Both. Okay. <laughs> so I, I have, you know, in fiction, I actually have here at my desk, um, October by China Mayville. Actually, no, it's not fiction. This one's nonfiction, too. So this guy is a fiction writer. He writes, uh, like, horror novels, mm-hmm. like, scary stuff. But this book is, it's the story of the October Revolution in 1917 in Russia. Yeah. Um, when the Soviet Union came mm. about. But it's written by a horror writer. So you can imagine just how delicious the sentences are. <laughs> so it's, it, it reads like this crazy novel, but it's a true story. All right, so I, I read that. That's just my fascination with the topic and, and the idea of doing that kind of style of writing on, you know, kind of a, a historical event we all know something about. Um, I have it somewhere around here. Oh yeah, I have it in the back. This is this is audio, right? Not a not yeah, video. It so it doesn't matter if I show you. Anyway, um, the latest nonfiction I read is a book that's coming out a week after mine. It's called The Creative Curve. This is by oh. a guy named Alan Gannett. You know Alan? Yeah, yeah. We just talked with him a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. so yeah. you know all about it. Alan is one of the most brilliant and handsome people I've ever met in my life. And uh, if he wasn't so handsome and nice. I would be mad at him for being so brilliant. But his new book, I took tons of notes, um, just the way that he breaks down how anyone can be creative. It, I mean, it, it sort of hits all of the, you know, my favorite kinds of things as a writer, um, you know, using surprising science to explain that, hey, we all have what it takes. Um, but uh, I took lots of notes on that one. Yeah, that book was, that book was so smart. Yeah, I agree. Um, if you could have everybody learn one thing, now this could be about teams, this could be about whatever, it doesn't matter. It could be about, you, you might want people to know how to, I don't know, whatever. What would that thing be? Spanish. If you speak Spanish, then learn English. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, learning more language is really, really useful for developing intellectual humility. It's also great for building empathy with other people. I think... You know, in America, we have these weird narratives around countries like Mexico where, that are, you know, full of human beings just like us. None of us chose where we were born or, you know, any of that. Um, but I love Spanish because it, it does something that English doesn't, which is it sort of detaches who you are from how you feel. So if, uh, if it's hot in this room, which it is right now, I would say in English, I'm hot. It's and, you know, in that case, it's sort of, you know, not that crucial of a thing, whatever. I'm not really attached ego or identity wise. But in lots of other areas in life, English, basically, we say I am this. And it, it basically primes us to kind of hang on to things mm-hmm. as part of our identity that don't necessarily need to be hung on to. And that can be detrimental. So, you know, saying even things like I'm a, I'm a, a Virgo, right? That's my sign. I don't even know what that means, but I'm a Virgo, or I'm an American, or I'm, you know, whatever. I'm I'm an Idahoan. 
I'm this, I'm that. We say that all the time in little ways and in big ways when we categorize ourselves. And that makes it harder for us to have the kinds of conversations and debates that lead us to going anywhere because that primes us psychologically to feel attached. Whereas in Spanish, you say the literal translation would be, I feel heat, or I have heat, or I am from America. Um, or in Spanish, you would say, todos somos americanos. We're all Americans. You're from the United States. I'm from America too, just Mexico or Guatemala or wherever. Um, so I, I think that that is learning more languages teaches us things like that that can help us to detach our identity and our ego from what we're talking about. But I also think Spanish is a beautiful language. It's gorgeous and romantic. And Spanish music is like once you can understand kind of what's going on, you speak a little Spanish. Um, the music is incredible. Anyway, so that's the one thing I would say. And if you speak Spanish and don't speak English, then speak English. Then we can all uh, we can all talk. And if you speak both, then learn Mandarin because that's a big one. <laughs> just do that. You know, just go ahead and, and learn all those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you've already said that right now. You're learning um, about the relationship between ego and intellect. Is there anything else right now that you're learning about? I'm embarrassed to say this because I probably did this this whole interview. But I'm learning how to stop using filler words like um and like when I speak. So it's a little bit of getting back to that pause, think, and then say what you want to say. Yep. Instead of, you know, there's almost this insecure quality to it where I say, uh, because I don't want someone else to talk because I'm worried about thinking about what I need to say yep. so that I can get it out. And if I don't say, uh, then maybe I'm going to miss my chance or something which is dumb. So I'm working on that. I'm learning how to do that. And it is mostly just practice, but it's also the way that I'm learning is I'm watching interviews of people, listening to interviews of people who are really good at it and paying attention to their pauses. It's not easy, but yeah, working on it. Yeah. Well, Shane, thanks so much for joining us on the Learner's Quarter today. If people want to learn more from you and find the book, where's the best place for them to do that? It's just my name, shanesnow.com. You can find everything there, or you can Google me. I always say there's three of us. There's a hockey player, uh, there's a model, and then there's me. So the, <laughs> the unremarkable one of the three is, uh, is uh, the writer. Uh, well, Shane, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you for all the great questions and, and this great hour. Caleb J. Mason. Phenomenal episode. Loved it. Love learning about teams. What did you learn? I think the one of two things really stood out to me um, throughout the interview and really just in the book. And it's this, that two requirements for having a great team are diversity and humility and how they play back and forth to each other. Because in order to listen to people's diverse experiences, you have to have humility. Gotta have humility. And you need to be willing to yeah. say, hey, that the way that I see the world may not be 100% correct. Or just because, I should say it more like this, that the way I see the world isn't necessarily the way that you see the world. Yeah. The I think the big one that I took away, it was, I don't even think he said these these two, this phrase. I don't even think he said it in here, but it was something that I took away from. It was emotional intelligence as a leader. And being able to understand where you're at and how you should navigate that. 
And there's a resource that's going to be in the show notes um, that he mentioned about just understanding kind of where you're at in terms of um, being being not tolerance, not the right word, but in terms of oh, open, oh, open, being yeah, openness open. and, and, and being able to accept new ideas and things like that. And, and, and so emotional intelligence, I think, was the thing that came out of the book and of the, this interview and, and how important that is for leaders to understand where they're at in, in terms of their emotional intelligence level and cultivating that, like really building that and, and, and doing that better. Now, we have this week has been an incredible week with talking with Sam and with talking with Shane. Killing it. We have a phenomenal episode next Tuesday. We are going to be talking with Alan Gannett. And oh, yeah. oh my goodness. he's He spent a tremendous amount of time oh. researching creativity and finding. With, Where are we with, finding with, these people With at? proven research how creativity and how you can become more creative. And so the best way to make sure that you don't miss that episode is by subscribing to our podcast on whatever podcast player you use. If you enjoyed this episode or if you learned something from this episode, let us know what you're currently learning from. Also, don't forget to check out some of those resources that Shane said throughout this episode. Look for the show notes for them. Check out that fun video. Yep. And just let us know what you learned from this episode. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you've learned something, leave a rating and write a review on the podcast and just let us know how we can continue to improve and what you enjoy about the show as well. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is Todd Hicksonball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.